Believe it or not, the Y2K incident was almost 20 years ago. Most of us can remember exactly where we were on the night of December the 31st, 1999. For the younger among us who don't know Y2K, wondering what that is, basically people were in a panic back in 1999 over what was going to happen to computers as we flipped into the new millennia. The worry was that a large number of computers were coded with two-digit dates for the year rather than four digits. And so when it flipped from 99 to, to zero, 00, the two-digit coding would um, make the computer think that we've reverted back to 1900 instead of the year 2000. And that's going to crash, you know, all the computers in the world. You know, what's going to happen to our banking system? What's going to happen to our power grid? You know, our, our plane's going to be falling out of the sky, that sort of thing. And for maybe for many of you similar to me, Y2K was the, my very first exposure to preppers. Preppers, yeah, people who amassed large amounts of non-perishable food items, dried food and water for three years, you know, large weapons caches. You know, we're going to store gold and silver bullion in, in the basement of the house. And yeah, I hadn't been exposed to that. Well, John Piper the famous pastor, he had a very punchy response to uh, preppers or punchy observation. He said that when I asked people who were prepping and stockpiling all this stuff, like, why are you doing this? The Christian preppers would say to me, well, John, if it all goes down, I want to be in a position where I can take care of not only myself and my family, but I want to be generous to others as well. And John Piper says, he goes, give me a break. If that's what you really want to do, be generous and helpful, you can do that right now. I suppose that if you've been pastoring the same church for 40 years, you can get away with that kind of punchy, you know, give me a break. Give me a break. If that's really what you want to do, you can do it right now. But if we're at all introspective, we, we recognize in ourselves how easy it is to fall into that same mental trap. You know, why, why do I want more and more and more and more and more retirement savings? So that I can live the rest of my life in the lap of luxury? Well, we know better than to answer that way. (laughs) No, it's so that I can take care of myself and my family and be generous to others, right? Well, let's be sure that we're doing that right now. Let's be sure that we're doing Micah 6.8. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. We've got a passage where that is, is really not taking place. Nehemiah 5.1, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and, our sons and, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. While others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our sons, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I, that is Nehemiah, heard the outcry, there are outcry in these charges, I was angry. I pondered them in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Now, this is the old NIV. The the newer translations, 
You know, usury is excessive interest. Newer translations actually say just simply you are charging interest. Probably the Hebrew word means that. You're simply, you're charging interest to them. So it's not necessarily even usury. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have brought, bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you were doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also uh, lending the people money and grain, but, but let the lending with interest stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. And they said, well, we will give it back, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and, and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also, and so this is a visible representation of kind of the curse that he is putting upon them. I also shook out the folds of my robe, of my tunic, and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. And the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I did include verses 14 through 19, but basically it goes on to say that Nehemiah, as the governor of Judea, refused. He did this. Next 12 years, he refuses to receive the food ration that was due him properly as a governor of Judea. Refused to take that from the people because he knew it would be a, a burden to them. And in addition to that, he opens up his royal table, the governor's table, to hundreds and hundreds of his fellow Jews to eat at. I mean, a, a real example of sacrificial service that he expects of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are three groups of people in danger here. You may be uh, caught on to that as I was reading. There were families, poor families, where the fathers and the brothers, or rather fathers and the sons in these families, the breadwinners, were so busy rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem, they were not able to earn wages. So these families, especially in light of what seems to be a famine that has come, uh, they have, they have, there's no wages, they don't have any land, they're starving to death. Number two, there are families who do own land, they're a little better off, but the famine has required them to mortgage part of their property to buy food, and they cannot pay the interest that their fellow Jews are are charging them on the property. They can't can't pay the interest on their debts. And number three, finally, there are families who don't have enough to pay the royal tribute to the Persians. Essentially, they were being taxed to death by the Persians, 40 and 50% markup. Um, And so they've, they've somehow sold their sons and daughters into some form of slavery. That's the background of the passage. Now, here's what I want you to do. Listen to what the Torah teaches in Leviticus chapter 25. It says this, if your, poor brother be, or if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you, and you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. And if your brother becomes so poor beside you and has to sell himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave." 
He shall be with you as a hired worker. For these are my servants, my people, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. And they shall not be sold as slaves again. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. Hear that? All of this is the themes that we just read in the passage. I mean, Moses couldn't, it couldn't have been any clearer. Don't charge interest. Don't make them slaves. Don't engage in predatory lending. Don't be local pawnbrokers. Don't oppress the poor. I mean, they're behaving without any regard to the obligation that they have to obeying the Torah, without any, without any regard for the obligations of brotherhood and sisterhood. Nehemiah is livid. livid. Do not oppress the poor. What else is going on right now? And this is what's kind of crazy. A great work of the Holy Spirit is going on right now. You know, the city walls are going up. Uh, the people, we read about it last chapter, are shoulder to shoulder, sword and trowel, moving the rubble, laying the stones, building the gates, men, women, and children, surrounding the city, you know, all for one, one for all, all working together. God is doing this amazing exponentially amazing work. I mean, something that hadn't taken place in 140 years. They're doing it in 52 days. And you just, you're left scratching your head wondering, how did those two things coexist? How do they coexist in the people of God? You know what the whole thing reminds me of? It's almost as if this is an Old Testament example of the New Testament church at Corinth. If you remember, God was, he was doing a great work there too. Paul had planted a church, he, he had brought them the gospel, he had shown them Jesus, he had taught them the Torah. I mean, there was tremendous spiritual energy and, and uh, vitality. The spirit was at work in that church. No sooner does Paul leave the church than what happens? Then the rich begin to exploit the poor, to take advantage of the poor. And the church is a mess. And the two coexist. Now this isn't what I'm about to say is not the main point of Nehemiah 5. I recognize that. But I think it really does bear uh, attention, our attention. And I think it's a truth that proves itself on, on nearly every page of the Bible and certainly on every page of church history for the last 2,000 years. And it's this, that the people of God are a mixture of, they are a mixture of spirit-filled, God is doing a great work, goodness among us, mixed together with like sheer, sheer ugliness and selfishness. The church, the church of God is really, she is holiness and love and sacrifice and she's really radioactive sinfulness. She is. That is the Holy Catholic Church. That is All Saints Presbyterian Church. It's every church in the Treasure Valley. Every church in the entire world. That's, that's us. Which is no different, is it, than the life of every individual Christian? Because that too is us. You know, I think we all wish it wasn't the case. Of course we wish it wasn't the case. Of course we wish that uh, people who are building the city of God wouldn't turn around and you know, sell it on the back lot. But we do. We do. And what happens when you... When you maybe for the first time, recognize uh, this ugly truth about God's people. It can be pretty demoralizing. You know, we get fed up with the church. We get fed up with other Christians. Maybe we tend to see nothing good about the church and have nothing good to say about the church. 
And surely there are always plenty of failures to point out. There's always, always more than enough failures to feed a critical spirit. Always. And yet for all the Holy Catholic Church's failures and all of All Saints Presbyterian Church's failures, at the end of the day, she's a mess and she's God's mess. She's a mess and she's the apple of God's eye. And he promises to use her. It's like somehow the Spirit gets the job done. <laughs> he promises to use her. And that's not meant in any way to ex- excuse her bad behavior. I mean, Nehemiah confronts the problem. Look what's, what he does in verse 9. He says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord and avoid the approach, reproach of our Gentile enemies? Which that is what happens when the church acts badly. It just brings the reproach upon it of our neighbors. But shouldn't you fear God? That's what he says. That, that's the controlling principle of all of the Proverbs. The controlling principle of all the wisdom literature. Um, we, you know, sometimes in uh, regular parlance, we talk about a, a guy or a girl getting it. You know, right? Oh, he's, he just gets it. We say that sometimes, right? Or she just gets it. Well, gets it in the Bible is none other than the fear of God. <laughs> you know, the fear of God is the beginning of, of all, all wisdom and knowledge. The, the man who gets the fear of God gets it. And he says, you don't get it. And then he even goes further. He says, I'm going to lay a curse upon you if you, uh, if you don't follow through on what you've promised to do. And he shakes out his tunic. Um, but he doesn't simply confront. He also, as we already said, I mean, shows really beautiful sacrificial generosity. For 12 years, doesn't take the ration. Um, and he opens his own table. Rob Rayburn puts it very well, as he often does. He says, the church will be served far better if those of us who get angry with her from time to time and those of us who insist on her changing her ways from time to time are also those of us who are like Nehemiah, who love her with a passion and have given themselves to her welfare with an unfeigned love and commitment. I mean, it's all right to get frustrated with the church, frustrated with other Christians, frustrated with pastors, frustrated with me, I mean, Jesus gets frustrated with the church. The, the, the seven letters to the seven churches, he gets mad at the church. He does. But his disappointment never dims his undying love and commitment for her. And I hope the same can be said of us. Would somebody grab me a water? I'd be so, I forgot to bring it up here. All right, we're on to point number two, because that really isn't the main point of the passage. I think the, the passage, thanks bud. I think the passage is clearly concerned with societal reform and particularly justice. That word justice is a loaded word today, right? What is justice? What in the world is justice? There have never been stronger calls for justice as long as I've been alive than what we are hearing right now. But, but seldom do those who issue the calls for justice acknowledge that currently there are competing visions of justice and, and often those visions are at sharp variance and that none of them have achieved anything like a cultural consensus uh, in the history of the United States at least. Now I don't have the, either the time or the expertise to go through kind of the history of different uh, justice theories. What I want to do is uh, fast forward to the 18th century, David Hume, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, you know, Hume I think Hume just got kicked, his name was kicked off of uh, 
a building in, in one of the colleges in England this week. I don't know if you saw that, but, but yeah. David Hume. So earlier Enlightenment philosophers make a break from the medieval tradition and say there's no way that you can root morality or justice or human rights in religion. Like, we can't do that anymore. Uh, the only way we can do it is through the use of human reason. We can use our brains and reason our ways to morality and justice. Hume comes along and he, he says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Human reason does not provide sufficient grounds for mor- morality and justice. The only basis for mo- moral decisions is sentiment, um, is the moral intuitions we have inside of us, which are largely culturally conditioned emotions, sentimental emotions. And Hume's vision uh, really wins the day. And to some extent, you know, it's, it's adopted you know, by people today. So Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith, he wrote a book called The Atheist Overreach. Uh, I won't go into the book, but he does invite an, an atheist friend of his to come, come and talk about this issue on his podcast. And so Smith asks him this question. What is your basis for saying that we ought to help starving people in Africa? As a secular person, what is your basis that, that to say it is wrong not to help starving people in, in another country? What do you say to the guy who says, I, I don't care what happens outside of our borders. Things that happen outside our borders, not my problem. Why should I care? Do, do you as a secular person have a justifiable like, answer to them? And the atheist responds, and I thought he responded well, and he, he responded honestly. He said, People are human beings, and I just figure that they should be treated fairly. I mean, I know what it feels like to be treated with kindness, and I know what it feels like to be treated with meanness. I know, what others, I know that others feel the same way, and so I want to treat them with dignity and respect because that is what I would want. And granted, I don't have any objective source for the dignity of people. It's just based on the fact that I would want to be treated in this way. So, why do I need more reason or justification than that? It seems like common sense to me. And, and, and Smith gives a, a really good response. He says, those sensibilities about love and human rights and do unto other people as you would wish to be done to yourself, you realize that those sensibilities are simply riding the wave of 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian teaching about those things. The the reason that makes sense to you is because you're borrowing the capital, Judeo-Christian capital. Uh, Those moral ideas of loving your neighbor and honoring his or her rights, regardless of who they are, they 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 make sense to you right now. What I worry about is what happens... Those are based on Judeo-Christian principles. What happens as our culture... You know, we're post-Christian. As we continue to move away from those, anything that has to do with Christianity, will those moral ideals make sense to our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren as religion continues to, to decline? I mean, won't they just ask, like, sure, I care about my not suffering, but why should I care about someone else's not suffering? It doesn't seem to me that secularism has a good answer to that question. And I think the same, um, or, or rather, to summarize it, I'm glad you feel like the golden rule is right, and you don't realize that that's actually based upon Christian teaching. But why should someone else feel the same way that you feel about it? You know, what happens when a society no longer feels that way? 
Its sensibilities, its intuitions, moral intuitions no longer seem that way. And secularism really doesn't ever do a very good job of answering that. And the same could be asked about secular views of justice. Why should I accept your view when at the bottom of your view of what is just and unjust is just your culturally conditioned sensation that this is right or this is wrong? Like, why should your feelings be privileged above someone else's feelings? It's subjectivism, really. And you might reply, well, it's the subjectivism of the majority. Well, when, when does the subjectivism of the majority make something just or unjust? Let me talk for a minute about biblical justice. The Hebrew word in the Bible occurs about 200 times in various forms for justice is mishpat. Mishpat. Uh, um, and it's, in its most basic meaning, it is to treat people equitably. So we read in the Torah that we are to have the same, the same mishpat for the foreigner or, or as, as the nate. Um, the same mishpat for the foreigner and the native, like the same rule of law, like the, uh, the same rules apply to everybody. Mishpat requires acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of their case, regardless of their tribe or, or of their race, of their social status, or of their parentage. Furthermore, mishpat also means to give people their rights. We are told to defend the mishpat of the poor and the needy, the rights of the poor and needy. And we've already read about some of the mishpats of the poor and needy from Leviticus 25. They have a right to not be charged interest from you. They have a right to not be enslaved by you. They have a right, if they owe you a, a large amount of money, that you hire them as an indentured servant for a time. Um, they, the gleaning laws of the Old Testament, the harvesting laws of the Old Testament were also an ex- excellent example of this mishpat. If you were a landowner, you know, you were not allowed to harvest the entirety of your field. You were not allowed to, to take it all, right? You were not allowed to pick um, all the sheaves of grain in your field or pick all the olives or grapes on your trees and your vines. You were to leave some of those for the poor people so that they could come in and through their labor, they could be fed. It was the mishpat of the poor. So mishpat, essentially, mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or acquittal or care or food or advocacy. Often the Bible will say, Isaiah 117, that we are to speak up for, for the quartet of the vulnerable that you saw on the front of your bulletin today, for the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. These are all people that have no social power. These are all people uh, who are even in this passage who may be only days away from starvation if there is some form of social unrest or if there's, in this case, a famine. It's a very good question for us just to practically ask at at any time. What does this man do? Or what does this woman do? What does this child do? What does someone else do? And given how often the prophets speak about this, it would seem... Summary statement, it would seem that the justness of Jewish society was evaluated primarily by how it treated what was due to the quartet of the vulnerable. And neglecting to give them what they were due was a transgression of mishpat, of justice. I should make uh, one more statement on that. And there's, as I spill water all over me. One striking feature about Old Testament Israel is if you did have to go into debt slavery, 
And you had, you owed another guy a large amount of money and you couldn't pay it off. The maximum amount of time you would have to work for him to pay off your debts. Maximum amount of time. This wouldn't happen normally. Maximum amount of time is seven years. And, and then you don't have any more debts. You're free and clear. And if your family gets super poor, like terribly horrible poor, falls in a terrible situation, they have to mortgage off some of the family land. You know, the longest a family could be without the family land was the longest maximum time, 50 years. I mean, normally it wouldn't even take that long, but it was the the next time for the grand year of Jubilee. At the grand year of Jubilee, all of that land goes back to the original family. And, And you can just imagine what that would do. What does that do to generational poverty? What does that do to just that generational, my dad is poor, I'm poor, my kids are going to be poor. By reverting it back, one has to imagine it made a a significant dent in generations of poverty. Now, I'm not talking politics here. I'm really not. I mean, politics, in my mind, politics are specific policy initiatives that we are advocating for in 21st century America or particular judicial decisions that we want to see in 21st century America. The United States of America is so apples to oranges with, uh, you know, 2000 BC Israel. (laughs) Um, Israel is a single nation state with a divinely appointed land apportionments. It was a theocracy with a religious law code backed up by civil penalties I'm really not talking politics. I think it's, it's very difficult to know how mishpat in Israel translates into the 21st century social policies of the United States of America. And sure, it's difficult. I mean, isn't that why we Christians are so bitterly divided on these things, on social programs, on how the poor ought to be treated? This is an overgeneralization, but it's pretty accurate. You know, some Christians believe it's, it's primarily the government's job to aid the poor. And Christians should back those politicians who support programs which seek to aid the poor through various redistribution and assistance programs. Um, that is, after all, they would say, the quickest way to leverage goods and services on a national scale. And this is a national scale problem. So when election time rolls around, they'll look for which party or politician is most uh, committed to doing that. And then other Christians, the other end of the spectrum, are those who think that the government does a very bad job of helping the poor and actually creates a cycle that perpetuates poverty. Uh, They may believe that it's primarily the job of the church. It's the church's responsibility and not the state's. You sometimes hear that said. They want the church and maybe various nonprofits to take the lead and and work in the inner city and do the lion's share work of of caring for the poor. I'm not endorsing either side of it. What I think we have to be very cautious, though, is, is the attitude that says, I thought you Christians were supposed to care about the poor. How could you possibly be opposed to politician X or policy Y? You know, I thought you were supposed to love the poor. Why aren't you voting uh, this way? I mean, of course we must love and care for the poor. We, we just, unfortunately, have probably very, sometimes very different ideas of how Mishpat translates into the 21st century. I want to conclude with two simple principles. Uh, they're, they're just simple. I, don't, I hope they're helpful. I, after I wrote my sermon, I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's not that helpful. But two principles that might help guide us individually and us as a church. Principle number one. 
We are most responsible to help those poor who are closest to us, who are closest to us, particularly in our own families. And that can include aging parents, it can include adult children who are struggling financially, extended family members who have fallen on hard times. I mean, this is just a direct extension of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially members of his household, he has denied the, the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. You're acting like a non-Christian if you don't care for the poor in your own family. So that's the first concentric circle, those who are closest to us. The next concentric circle would be those who are part of our spiritual family. We've, we've got to take care of the poor in our churches, um, our spiritual family, and, and the you know, our, our, the Holy Catholic Church, our, our brothers and sisters in the Philippines. That would be the third concentric circle in, in principle number one. In principle number two is this. We are most responsible to help the quartet of the vulnerable. We are. We are most responsible to help the people who are least able to help themselves. Today, I think the quartet of the vulnerable would be expanded to include the refugee, the homeless, the many single parents we have, um, Uh, many elderly who have been abandoned. Uh, It would be expanded certainly to include the unborn. I mean, the unborn have no voice. It ought to be expanded to include, you know, like children who who grow up in like crack homes and, you know, kids who are just in the most impoverished situations. You know, kids in drugs, homes of drugs and alcohol, meth and sheer poverty. We're just simply to think very hard about what is each man do? We have to give to each what they are due. And as Christians, we can charitably debate over the specifics, over what they are due or, or how they are due it. Is, it. is it the government? Is it the church? Is it a conglomeration? Um, and that's where we disagree, right? Are the poor due a, a minimum source of income? Are the poor due... Um, a minimum source of health care? Are they, are they due a, a Cadillac plan in health care? Are they, you know, we have all of these different debates over what is it and who provides it. We can disagree on those. What I hope they have a right to expect from us as Christians is that we will seek justice, we'll do justice, we will love mercy, we will walk humbly before our God. Justice Mercy, humility, generosity, all of those things are so repeatedly taught to us in the New Testament. Remember this church, somebody can drive a a blinged out Cadillac Escalade and secretly be one of the most generous brothers and sisters uh, in the world. And somebody else can drive like I did for a long time, a 94 Honda Civic, and be be proud that they're not as materialistic as the other guy, and have a completely miserly attitude towards the poor. Remember, we don't know how generous another person is. And if we judge our fellow Christians based on the nice cars they drive, or the home they live in, or even how they vote in the booth, uh, you know, we just don't, we don't know. Outward uh, presentations of wealth, and and even public policy, we, we just don't know what what they're really doing for the poor. Hopefully what we would once said of all, said of all of us, what you would once said of you, 
is that if another person did a financial audit of your bank account, (laughs) your, your bank statements, they would walk away and they would say, this is a person who really cares who really cares for the quartet of the vulnerable. If they did an audit of your uh, free time, right? This is a person who, who really cares for the quartet of the vulnerable. Because Jesus, when he came to earth, came as a poor man, we know. He came to a family at the bottom of the social order. He died at the hands of the government and, and religious elites who used their power to oppress. And by enduring their violence and injustice, he paid the penalty for humanity's sin Then he was raised to greatest honor and authority to protect the weak and the helpless. And we have our role to fulfill in that. We may not agree on each other's positions, um, but we will answer to the Lord. We will answer to the Lord. We will answer to the Lord for how we care for the poor. And we don't want him to be the one who's telling us to uh, give him a break, do we? (laughs) Not at all. If if what we really want to do is be generous and helpful and just, that is something... We should be doing right now. Amen.